Amen. You may be seated. And open your Bibles at first to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 23. We have two passages tonight, Luke 23, beginning at verse 44, reading to the end of the chapter. And then in Matthew 27, we'll begin reading at verse 45 and reading through verse 50. Let's give our attention now to the Word of God. Luke 23, beginning with verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly, this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breast. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down, wrapped it in a linen shroud, And laid him in a tomb cut in stone, where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointment. On the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. And then Matthew Chapter 27 and verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. One of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. May God bless this reading of his holy word. Let's pray together. Our Father, once again, we stand amazed before the suffering servant of Jehovah and wonder how he could love us, sinners condemned and unclean. How could he suffer? How could he die for us and for our salvation? 
Lord, would you draw near this evening and help us as we read, as we speak, as we think of these glorious truths of our Redeemer and enable us to know the greatness of yours and his love for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for several weeks now, we have been attempting to see and to understand more of exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ went through in the final 24 hours of his life. Specifically, of what he endured just before and during the process of his crucifixion. Now, my friends, I understand some of these things have not been easy to think about, to hear about, and to read about. But know this, God has included these things in his word so that you and I can understand, see, and know at least something of the depth of our Savior's love for us. So much so did he love us that he was willing to suffer all these things and die in our place. Now, no one, I think, in Scripture captures the depth of that love like the Apostle Paul when he writes in Ephesians 5 and he uses the love of Christ to exhort husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And how is it that he highlights that love? What is it that he wants husbands to learn from the way Christ loved the church? It was this, that he gave himself. He gave himself. He suffered. He sacrificed And he did so in order to redeem us. He did so. He went through all of this that we have talked about to this point and will be talking about tonight. He went through all of this that he might sanctify the church. That he would make her holy and to cleanse her, to wash her from all her sins And all her transgressions. Keep that in mind as we consider these things tonight. Or think of the way that Jesus puts it. In those words that we started with tonight. I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I lay it down. No one takes it from me. I voluntarily sacrifice myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. Now I know that this is hard but I'm going to ask you tonight that we might sit once again 
at the foot of the cross, that we might not hasten away from that, sit here a little longer. And I want to ask you, as you gaze in your mind's eye and in your soul at a suffering Savior upon the cross, what is it that you see? One writer poignantly expresses it when they say, it is your husband that hangs bleeding there. It is the bridegroom of the church that hangs bleeding there upon that cross, suffering and dying. And he does so because of his love for God and for us, a love that was so great that he was willing to suffer and die that we might have eternal life. Now that love of Christ for his bride, for his church, for his sheep, is articulated in the seven sayings which he utters from the cross in those final hours. Of the seven sayings, as I mentioned Wednesday, three of them are addressed to men. Four of them are addressed to God. Luke records three. John records three. Both Matthew and Mark record only one, and that is the same one which we read tonight. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now the words today spoken to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise and the words, Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. Jesus goes immediately into the presence of God. He doesn't go to Hades. He doesn't go to some mysterious place between life and death, between heaven and hell. He goes immediately into the presence of God. Of his father. Now we've already dealt with those two. The words I thirst are part of the physical effects of his crucifixion. If you turn back to Psalm 22 and verse 15, you can read the words when he utters prophetically in Psalm 22 My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me. To the dust of death. Jesus has gone through all his suffering, all the abuse of the night before and the morning of, and then the process of crucifixion itself without a single drink of water. He is thirsty. His mouth is dry. His tongue clings to the roof of his mouth. The phrase, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother, is that which is spoken to the disciple John. And so in John 19, we read these words and they simply reveal the concern, the affection that Jesus had for his mother. And that now that he is going to die, he is committing her welfare 
to his trusted disciple, John, which strongly suggests that Joseph has died at this point and Mary is alone. And so he commits her to John and John to her. The words when he says, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. We've dealt with extensively back in Luke 17 on the nature of forgiveness. The one thing that I will say here is very important. Notice that Jesus does not forgive them, which he had the power to do, and which he did on numerous occasions, like with the sinful woman that came and anointed his, his feet and wiped them with her hair, like he did with the paralytic where he said, son, your sins are forgiven you. Jesus does not forgive them. He prays for their forgiveness. And there's a big difference. He could have forgiven them, But my friends, forgiveness is never offered to anyone outside of Christ. In him, the apostle says, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins through his blood. Outside of Christ, there is no hope for forgiveness. Forgiveness calls upon people to repent and to believe and to turn from their sin And confess those sins to the Lord. And that is what we would expect here. Jesus prays for their forgiveness. A prayer that as I've said before I believe was answered on the day of Pentecost. When 3,000 people. Many of whom would have been standing here 50 days before. And they repent. And believe and have forgiveness of their sins. Now that leaves us with two final words, two final sayings. Number one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the other, it is finished. We're going to focus preeminently and predominantly on this phrase, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And then our last point will deal with the subject, it is finished. Now, we are, we are, to say that we are in deep water here would be the understatement of the year. Story is told of Martin Luther, who started meditating upon this phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And after several hours, Luther leapt to his feet and exclaimed, God forsaken of God. Who can understand that? Well, we are indeed going to try to understand at least what we are able to understand according to the scriptures. Two things that I want to highlight in reference to this phrase. First, that Christ was sustained through this trial, through this crucifixion, by his faith. 
According to Matthew 27 and verse 46, these words were spoken in the ninth hour. In other words, 3 p.m. in the afternoon. It is at the very height of our Savior's suffering. What had so disturbed him and distressed him in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he cries out, Father, if there is any possible way, let this cup pass from me. That which troubled him so and grieved him so in the garden has now seized his soul in full. What had caused him to sweat blood and what had caused him to cry if there was any other way that cup would pass has now come upon him. But take notice, my friends, that even in the midst of his suffering, he calls upon God. He cries, my God. Notice that personal pronoun. It is my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Our Savior is in agony physically and spiritually, but his eyes are on the Lord God. And he cries, my God. It is a most extraordinary display of our Savior's faith. Wave upon wave of anguish has crushed him Physically, emotionally, mentally, and now spiritually. The powers of hell have been loosed upon his soul. And what does he do in the midst of it all? He cries, my God, my God. Richard Sibbs comments on this verse saying notice Christ does not complain against God but to God he cries to God for help and that is so clearly presented if you go back to Psalm 22 we have in verse 1 this very cry my God my God why have you forsaken me why are you so far From helping me. But in verse 7, he says, All those who see me ridicule me. They shake their heads, saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him. In verse 3, he says, But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. In verse 9, you are the one who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from birth, from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. At this moment of intense suffering Christ is crying out to his God 
my God, my God. And my friends, I don't know what you've been through. I don't know what you may be going through this very night. But I can tell you this, making the living God your God will deliver you as it delivered the Lord Jesus Christ. It will sustain you. It will do the same for you that it did for him. You may be going through what the Puritans call the dark night of the soul. You may be experiencing what the psalmist experienced when he cries out over and over again, Why? Why, O Lord? How long, O Lord? We read that very verse this morning in Psalm 80. How long, O Lord, will the enemy triumph? Alexander McLaren writes of those expressions that God will not mistake the cry of pain for impatience. We may be led to cry out, how long, Lord? We may be led to cry out, why? Why, Lord? Why are these things happening? Why are you so far from helping me? But when that happens, stay your mind and your heart upon God. Call upon him. And he will help. That is what the Lord Jesus Christ does. He cries out to God. He expresses his faith. And that faith sustained him through all that he endured. Secondly, Christ suffered because of his love for God and for us. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think we can say with Luther, this is beyond our ability to understand. There are things here that we just simply cannot comprehend. And one of the things that makes it so hard to understand is that there is absolutely nothing, nothing in any human experience that can be compared to this. You can't say, well, what Jesus went through was like this. You can't say anyone, no one, in the history of the world, can say, I've experienced what Jesus experienced when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It can't be done. This was unique to the Lord Jesus Christ. However, scriptures do tell us some of the things that were happening at that moment that give us at least some measure of understanding of what is happening. Isaiah 53 and verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray, each one to his own way, and the Lord 
has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. That is what is happening at this moment. The Lord is laying upon him the iniquity of us all. Think of the Apostle Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us in order that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That is what's happening right here. Jesus Christ, the perfect, sinless Son of God, is made sin in our place. He is on that cross crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As our substitute, God has made him to be sin. And that act of imputing our sin to Jesus is what is now resulting in the wrath of God that you and I deserved is being poured out upon Christ on the cross. That wrath belonged to us But Christ willingly took it upon himself. You may remember those words from him we sang last week, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. The second half of the second verse says, Many hands were raised to wound him. None would interpose to save. But the deepest stroke that pierced him was not the beating. It was not the the crown of thorns. It was not being nailed to the cross. The deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave when God made him to be sin and poured upon him the wrath you and I deserved. To be forsaken by God does not mean, as many of you may have heard, that God turned his back upon his son. Quite the opposite, my friends. To be forsaken by God means that God was right there pouring out upon his son, actively imputing to him the judgment, the punishment, due all the sins of all the elect from the beginning of the world to the end of the world. And it was all poured out now upon the son of God. Upon his son, The punishment that we deserved is given to him. 
I can remember still the night that our seminary professor, Dr. Morton Smith, was talking about this passage, and he said, Young men, this phrase, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is hell in words. Because what Jesus was experiencing was the hell you and I deserved because of our sins. Those sins placed upon Christ, now he bears that punishment. The joy of his Father's presence that Jesus had never gone a day without experiencing is now replaced with the anger of his Father's presence in judging sin. The favor and blessing of his Father has now been replaced with the punishment, with the wrath for our sins. In short, we can simply say this, all the suffering, think about this, all the suffering that you and I deserved, all the torment that we should have experienced in an eternity of hell is now compressed and condensed and poured out upon the Lord Jesus Christ in those three hours of darkness. He drank the cup of God's wrath that was owing to each of us for all eternity. Having done so, we're told in verse 45... The sun was darkened, the veil of the temple was torn in two, and Jesus cried with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He cries as John tells us, it is finished. And with that we turn to our third and final point, Christ was satisfied with the results of his suffering and death. The Apostle John in 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2, writes and says, My little children, I write to you that you may not sin, but if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And he is the propitiation of our sins. That word propitiation is very specific and pointed. The word to propitiate means to turn away the wrath of by means of a sacrifice. And our Savior, by the sacrifice that he made of himself, had turned away the wrath of God from you and I and all those who will confess their sins and put their faith in him. We don't have to worry about the wrath of God anymore. If we cast our, our souls upon Jesus and believe 
in him. That wrath being turned away from us, Jesus could say, it is finished. All those whom the Father had chosen and given to him to redeem from before the foundation of the world have now been redeemed. All that the Father had given him to do was finished. It was complete. There's nothing more to be done. We don't have to do it. We can't do it. He has already done it. It is finished. It's complete. Our guilt is removed. Our sins are washed away. And we are now clothed in a perfect righteousness. The righteousness of the Son of God. He was made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. It is finished. It is complete. So that what the, the prophet Isaiah had prophet many, prophesied many years before had been accomplished. Now you know, Isaiah 53 is frequently remembered because of the, the staggering accuracy with which the prophet describes the sufferings of the Son of God. But brethren, that's not the whole story. Turn back to the prophet Isaiah and chapter 53. And there we begin to read what else takes place as a result of this suffering servant of Jehovah being brutalized and killed. We read in verse 10 and the, the latter part of that verse, he shall see his seed. Christ will see his seed. He will see the fruit of his labors. And he shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By... Uh, the labor of his hands, by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for, they, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, the Lord says, I will divide him a portion with the great. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors that is what we see taking place here Christ could say it is finished that work of redeeming grace had been accomplished and now the fruit of his labors were before him these are telling words and very similar to the words that we read in the book of Revelation and chapter 5. When all the hosts, the living creatures, the elders all fall down before the Lamb in verse 8. 
and begins pouring out prayers and incense before him, singing this song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. My friends, Jesus could say in those final moments, it is finished. He had done the work that his father sent him to do. He redeemed all his people, the church, all the sheep that the Father had given him would have everlasting life because of what he had accomplished. Well, Luke 23 tells us in verse 46 that he cries, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. He dies on the cross. Joseph of Arimathea takes him down with the permission of Pilate and buries him in a tomb. Now what's coming will amaze you. But we're not going there yet. He was forsaken so that we might become sons and daughters of God. He took upon himself the wrath of God so that you and I might receive mercy from God. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. He took and paid those wages. The gift of God is eternal life. And that is what we have because of him. So what does all of this mean? Well, there's many applications that we could make, but I want to highlight one in the beginning of Hebrews 12 in verses 1 through 3. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Listen, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. So many things here. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. 
Be diligent, my friends. If he loved us this much, can we not love him enough to seek to be conformed to his image, to be holy as he is holy by the grace and power that his spirit gives? Let us run the race. Don't sit back on the sidelines. Get engaged. Pursue heavenly things. Seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Strive to enter in at the narrow gate. Run the race with endurance. All the while looking unto Jesus. It's not my strength. It's not my gifts. It's not my talents. I'm looking unto Jesus. He is the author and he is the finisher of our faith. And we are to consider him. Think much about him. What he went through for our sakes. Because otherwise you will become discouraged and you will become weary in your labors. May God bless his word and help us to see more clearly, more fully, the great love that our Savior had, that he was willing to bear even the wrath of an eternal God that we might have life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, help us, help us this night to know the width and breadth, height and depth of the love of Christ and use that to stir us to all good works and service in love for our Savior and make us more like him by your grace and power. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.